Hi, this is Jen, and I'm with Katie Faust. And this is the Them Before Us podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Today's episode, we are talking about chapter two of the Them Before Us book, Biology Matters. If you're listening to this podcast, you have a mother and a father. We're not talking about who raised you. We're not talking about whether or not you know that individual. We are talking about the fact that a human being exists means that there was a progenitor or an ancestor, direct ancestor, of both a male of the human species and a female of the human species. And this was actually not controversial until, you know, uh, just recent years. This has sort of become a thing where people have to claim they don't have a mother or father anymore. When Them Before Us looks at all of these topics, biology matters. The phrase biology matters is kind of a grounding principle for us. And the question we're going to talk about today is, do a mom and a dad matter to their offspring? So if you have a child, think of a child. Does that mom and dad matter? Will, is any amount, any adults fine? Is a coach fine? Is three adults fine? Is just mom fine? That's a question we're going to talk about today. So Katie, I'd love to ask you, when we look at page one, chapter chapter two of Biology Matters, what are the big differences we see for a child when we look at biological parents and step-parents or mom's boyfriend? I open this chapter with um, a retelling of a conversation I had with a researcher and family counselor named Pat Fagan. So he had been doing family counseling um, and child counseling for about 50 years. He also is a marriage researcher. So it's pretty hard to become more of an expert than Pat Fagan. And he said something to me, it was back in 2015, the only time I've ever met him in person. He said, when a child, see, this is something he observed in his five decades of working with families. He said, when the child observes their mother loving their father, they feel like their mother is loving them. And when they see their father loving their mother, they feel like their father is loving them. And in his estimation, it was the only experience in the pantheon of human relationships where you could be loved indirectly, where nobody's even looking at you or talking to you or touching you, and you're being loved by somebody else. And that phenomenon, he said, only took place between the child's two biological parents. When, for example, it was dad and stepmom, the child did not feel that same circuitous love. They maybe would feel indifferent. Maybe they would think, oh, okay, my dad is experiencing some joy right now. Very often the child would feel protective or jealous instead. Um, that it was not necessarily a feeling of love going from the father to the stepmother and then back to the child. Mm. Um, obviously, same thing when it comes to mother's boyfriend, for example, or a new stepfather. Oftentimes, that new adult did not create that sense of love and security. It was sometimes, not always, more competition and jealousy. So he said there is something really special about a child's own mother loving their own father as it relates to the sense of security and love that the child experiences in the home. What do we know if it's adopted parents? Is it the same thing? Is it no different from a step-parent or is there a difference with adopted parents? We don't know from research, and actually we don't even have 
this idea of the circuitous love from research because that is a concept that is difficult to measure, right? This is something that he observed um, through his work in family counseling. But, and we are going to spend quite a bit of time talking about adoption as this podcast moves forward. We have an entire chapter devoted to adoption and the distinct challenges, but also the redemption that can be a part of adoptive families. But here are some differences that we can just lay out right up front. When you're talking about unrelated adult, adults caring for children, it matters how the adults get into that child's life. So for example, um, a stepfather is almost always not in the child's life because they were primarily pursuing the child. They are pursuing the child's mother and then very often have to figure out how to then parent or be in a relationship with the child. Sometimes they do that very well. Sometimes they say, okay, not only do I love this woman, but I am also going to commit to taking on a fatherly role of protection and provision for this child. But sometimes, unfortunately, they can say, I'm, I want a relationship with the child's mother and the kid is getting in the way, right? That's unfortunately how it manifests much of the time. So how a child comes into being in this house with an unrelated adult matters. When it comes to adoptive parents, what are the differences? The adoptive parents are in relationship with the child because they were going after the child, right. because they were seeking a relationship with the child, right? It's not sort of a secondary response to a, another primary goal that they have. Second, the adoptive parents are both getting in on it at the same time, at birth or at two years old or at five years old. And so there is not necessarily this uneven aspect of, I have a primary allegiance to one, and then here's this interloper or this newcomer that I have to then adjust to. So there isn't a research-based answer to that question, but we do know that, you know, as we're going to discuss um, in the Biology Matters chapter, that biological parents are the most connected to, invested in, and protective of their kids on the whole. Interestingly, when you look at adoptive parents, they actually spend more time and spend more money on their kids than the average biological parent too. So um, there are ways that adoption is different than these alternative family structures, both in terms of the relationship to the child, in terms of questions of who's doing hard things on behalf of the child, in terms of the stability of the relationship and the investment in the child, um, as we'll discuss in, in when we talk about chapter nine, that does not paper over all of the losses that children experience, but it does mean that positionally, adoptive parents are not necessarily in the same place as step-parents. And we just want, when we look at the stats, so this is page 28 of the Them Before Us book, we see that approximately one third of all weddings in America today form step families. So there's people listening to this podcast who are divorced, who are single parents, not by choice or single parents by choice, maybe past choices, and there are step families. We at Them Before Us are not saying you're a bad person because you're a step parent or you're a bad parent. And we see this a lot throughout the book. We know there's heroic step parents, there's heroic single parents, and we know there's abusive biological parents. And so that gets thrown back at us a lot when we're talking about this on social media, because we'll say biological parents are, tend to be the most invested and take care of their kids or the most connected to their kids. And then people will say, well, there's your story. Here's a story of a biological parent being abusive. 
So we're not saying you're automatically bad if you're a step parent, but we want to talk about the facts and the data because this is what helps us move forward and push for better, like we talked about the difference between legal rights, different legal things in the future, but we have to know the stats and know the best way to care for kids. And I think that will make step parents better, single parents better. You know, a woman who's alone um, is not being a great mom because she says to the kid, you don't need a dad. A great single mom is has some acknowledgement or sense in her mind of, I know my kid has lost something that I cannot replace. So she's going to be more proactive with, I'm going to make sure Uncle Bob hangs out with my son or he's playing soccer and has a great coach. Or So it's like, maybe that's the difference between adoptive parents as well, because there's been more of this there's been more of a move now to have open adoption and people acknowledging that the children have lost something versus maybe forties and fifties. It was kind of like, don't tell them and just pretend it's totally fine. And they didn't lose anything. So adoptive parents might go into the situation already knowing, Hey, they lost something, but we're here. We're sacrificing to help. So again, adults that are sacrificing to help and to mend a wound with kids, we are always on your side. So we hope you hear that and pick up on that as we go through this. Katie, can you speak a little bit to the, we say biology matters. Talk to us about the biological impact of kids that have lost one or both parents. It's no surprise that kids struggle emotionally when they don't have their mother or father in their life. We can go on and, um, and we do go on in the book quite a bit about the emotional harms, um, the academic harms, the relationship harms of losing a relationship with your mother and father or father. A lot of people are surprised to hear that there are concrete measurable physical harms um, that go along with mother or father loss. Now, mother loss is much more rare in our species. Mm -hmm. Up until recently, if you lost your mother, especially in infancy, you lost the infant, right? Before there was formula, bottles, that kind of thing. Like if the mom died, the babies died. Yes, that's exactly right. If the mother died died in childbirth or was absent, like the baby died. We've had more experience with father loss, and that certainly is where the majority of the research has taken place. As we move into an era of culture, law, and technology that is promoting and incentivizing intentional mother loss through surrogacy, we may have more insights into how mother loss impacts a child's physical body. But there's two ways that we know that father loss impacts a child's physical bodies and that are undisputed. The first one that has been observed um, over the last couple of decades is that girls who grow up without their biological father in the home, on average, start menstruating a year earlier, which is very significant, right? That is a major, major um, departure from sort of the normal onset of menses mm-hmm. um, that impacts her in a variety of different health ways long term. They don't know, they don't agree sociologists, people that have studied this don't agree on why it happens. Some sort of an evolutionary spin on this would be um, that the daughter perceives that there are not enough men in the world, right? Her body somehow knows that there should be a man in her life. And since there is no man in her world, there's no man in her life. There's no man that she's interacting with regularly. Something on the evolutionary side of things kicks in and says, I need to prepare to repopulate the world. So I need to, you know, be prepared to get pregnant sooner. Some hypothesize that it's not 
just the absence of dad, but it's the presence of unrelated men in the home with their biologically foreign pheromones that trigger the onset of a, of a girl's reproductive season. In essence, um, saying, oh, it looks like it's time for me to mate because mm -hmm. here is this man who I might need to um, reproduce with. Mm -hmm. So they don't know why it happens, but they know it happens. They know that um, father absence means that girls are going to, you know, blossom into womanhood sooner. Mm -hmm. um, another really shocking finding um, that came out in about 2019, I think. 20 what? 2017. 2017. Yep. 2017. Thank you. This is why my fact checker is on site. <laughs> um, was to discover that children who lost their father, and I believe the causes in that study were death, divorce, or incarceration, um, had shorter telomeres. The telomeres are the end caps of the chromosomes. So this is affecting every cell of a child's body. And the telomeres are largely responsible for health and longevity. So kids who have shorter telomeres, in essence, are going to be more prone to chronic illnesses. Um, they're going to have shorter lives, right? That like father loss actually could shorten a child's lifespan. Right. Um, and of course, you know, especially in infancy, the presence of a mother is so much more critical to um, attachment, survival, right. um, bonding, that it, we can only speculate about the impact of mother loss in those early years. I mean, if this is the impact that father loss has at the cellular level, what are we doing when it comes to mother loss? Yeah, that that is crazy. And it talks about too in chapter two with girls that are hitting puberty earlier, it's linked to a variety of negative biological, psychological, and social outcomes, such as mood disorders, substance abuse, and a variety of reproductive cancers. And then to the, the study about the telomeres, a boy, a, a man, dad being gone from the boy's life impacted his telomeres 40% greater than the girls. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy how these the biological impacts are so unique to both boys and girls, and it shows how important dad is to both of them. Well, it's so interesting because our culture can't tell the difference between a man and a woman, but your telomeres can. Right. Oh, right. Like, yeah, right. like you're a body's boy. I'm sorry. A boy's body responds differently to father loss than a girl's body. Right. There are biological realities here that we can either recognize or dismiss, yeah. but they don't go away just because we pretend like we're confused about what is a man and what is a woman. Right. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Katie, what would you say if someone said to you? All kids need is to be safe and loved. You can imagine we get this question a lot because this is the dominant cultural message about marriage and family. Biology doesn't matter. Kids just need to be safe and loved. So we don't have to guess at what factors will lead to a child being safe and loved. We have been studying family structure for decades and we know the place where kids are most safest and most loved. Yeah. And statistically, it is the home of their married by what they're saying is... Well, really, we mean moms and dads, right? Uh, but we're going to say two-parent because it's less controversial than saying children need their mother and father. But the reality is any two will not do. A child who is raised by mother and stepfather fares about as well as a child raised by their lone mother. So two does not help a lot of the time, not when it's, even if it's a mother and a, another man, right? And in that situation, the child has supposedly, in theory, maternal love and paternal love, which we'll talk about in the next podcast episode of why gender matters in the parent-child relationship. And so it's not 
any two will do. It's not any man and woman will do. It's a child's own mother and father. That is what maximizes child outcomes. And again, like you pointed out, um, sometimes a woman is a single mother because she was the only parent that was willing to act like an adult. And sometimes there may be a stepfather that joins the family who on purpose is doing it to seek to fill the gap of a negligent biological father. And for the adults that consciously take on that role of saying, I am going to do hard things on behalf of the child, right? Those are the adults that we cheer for. But usually the people that parrot the any two will do, kids just need two parents, um, they're getting the data wrong and they're actually putting children at risk because it's not any two, it's a child's own mom and dad. That's good stuff. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and be right back. listening to the Them Before Us podcast. Make sure you head over to thembeforeus.com to find us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, donate, and more. Thanks for joining the movement. We are back. Thanks for being here. We are going to talk about the Cinderella effect. Now, if you've seen the Disney version, you know what's who Cinderella is. It was a, a I think a French fairy tale. And it's about a girl who has a dad and her mom passes away, like every Disney movie. And then he gets remarried and to a woman who has two kids already. And then her dad passes away and she becomes the little servant girl because her mom doesn't care about her as much or her stepmom doesn't care about her as much. And, uh, but there's something in psychology or social science called the Cinderella effect. So can you tell us what that is about, Katie? It's a term that is coined by evolutionary biologists, actually. Mm. And the idea is that from an evolutionary perspective, there's no benefit in investing in non-genetically related offspring. And so what the Cinderella effect kind of characterizes is what is widely acknowledged to be disparate treatment between your own offspring and a stepchild. And Cinderella, the fairy tale, actually demonstrates this clearly, mm. right? the Cinderella is in the home, but the biological children of the stepmother are favored in terms of resources, investment, praise, connection, protection, all of that. And so it actually is a good illustration of some of the dynamics and realities that we see when we actually look at the research of kids who are raised by a stepmother or a stepfather. We have a number of stories on them before us as well that you can go and check out that talk about feeling disconnected from a parent. Sometimes it's because, and we'll talk about this in other episodes, sometimes a, a an adult is sharing their story and says, I felt like my dad never really cared about me, just cared about their other kids. And then they find out their their dad was not their biological father. Like I had a sperm donor, but every other sibling was one of my dad's biological kids. And and like we're going to talk about in a few minutes, the the disconnect between step-parents or non-biologically related parents doesn't automatically mean abuse. Sometimes it just means not being as protected. Or some other things you had mentioned, Katie, were that unrelated adults are less connected or invested. So can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Well, invested in terms of how much time they give and how much money they give. So we talk in the book about how... Um, 
step parents don't bequeath children as much money mm-hmm. in their will mm-hmm. um, if they are a stepchild. Um, they don't save as much money for college if it's a stepchild. Um, in terms of being connected, it's it's fascinating because by their own admission, um, step parents don't feel as connected to step children, but even more interesting, stepchildren don't feel as connected to step parents. So there's one survey that we summarize in the book about how only 50% of stepchildren claim their step parent as a parent while their parents are married. So 50% of kids are like, okay, that's somebody that's living with my mom or married to my mom, but that's not really a parent. And then interestingly, after that marriage breaks down, which obviously this is usually the second or third marriage that the kid has endured, half of that 50% say, yeah, not my parent, Mm -hmm. right? So at the end, like once that relationship is over, only 25% of them are like, yeah, that is somebody that actually I feel like I had a parent-child relationship with. So there are, it's possible for a child to feel that way about their own biological parent. Yeah, not my dad. Mm -hmm. Very, very rare. But this idea, you know, this gets back to sort of the cultural lie that any two will do. Kids just need to be safe and loved. Kids by their own admission will say, that is not apparent to me. They are not acting in a way that I would consider a parent or they've kind of moved in on my life or whatever it is. Um, and so we can look at this data and say that the majority of step parents or live-ins are not abusive. Right. Okay. So let's say that up front. Are they much more likely to abuse? 100% they're more likely, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily abusive just because they're unrelated. But it is rare to then find that unrelated adult who is also as invested and as connective and as protective. Um, And we also talk in the book about even if there's no abuse, children in the care of unrelated adults simply suffer more accidents, Mm. right? Maybe because they're not as monitored, they're not as connected, right? So they're not as aware of what the child is doing or even feel like it's their responsibility to watch out for what the child is doing. So when it comes to looking at this relationship with unrelated adults, again, there are incredible adults who are stepping in to do heroic things on behalf of kids. But when you are looking at broader policy questions, cultural narratives about who children are and what they need, it is obvious from everything that we know about family structure that biology matters. That's good. It's interesting too, from a personal standpoint, my parents got divorced when I was 17 or 18. So basically an adult and, and my mom remarried, um, a really great guy who had kids from his previous marriage, but we maybe had met each other once or twice before they got married and none of us lived together. Um, so it was an interesting dynamic, but as you're sharing that, it just made me think there's a piece of you too, even as an adult child of divorce, adult whose parents get divorced, that you, you, it feels like you're dishonoring your dad if you afford your stepdad the same terms or it's like, I, I wouldn't feel like I could introduce him as my dad. It feels like you have to say my mom's husband, or this is my stepdad to make a distinction of like, I don't want to dishonor my dad over here. So it's really fascinating. And then you feel connected because you love the person that is loved by them. So I'm so thankful he loves and respects and treats my mom really well. And I want to honor him and I'm happy to be in a relationship for those reasons, but I don't feel a familial connection in the same way, obviously, as I feel toward my dad, 
or my mom. So it's just, it's really fascinating. And think of now little kids trying to walk those dynamics of, I don't want my parents to be upset because maybe they do feel more connected to their stepdad than their dad because their dad's not present or whatever. But there still is a sense of loyalty and, well, this is the person I came from. Actually, this kind of goes into the next question. And we'll finish with this in the chapter. We talk about biological parents give something no other adult can give because they're giving identity, biological identity and connectedness in that way. So can you speak a little bit more to that and why is that important? This is critical, especially when we start talking about reproductive technologies that, um, you know, in the book we talk about how, um, you know, or, or we do it in the book. We'll also do it like when I'm out speaking or talking to a group of students, I'll say, can you name a great work of art, great epic story, even just a modern movie or a novel where the child goes on a quest to find their long lost mother's boyfriend? Or, Disney hasn't done that one yet. Right, yeah, it's not on Disney's radar yet. Um, and nobody can think of anything like that, right? Where somebody's searching for their stepmother. Um, and then I say, give me the name of a story or a movie or a novel or a great work of literature where somebody is on a quest to find their long lost father. And now it's like the greatest stories ever told. You know, like for me, like when I was a kid, it was like Land Before Time, right? Where the kid's looking for their mother mm -hmm. or um, American Tale, right? Where the mouse is separated and they're trying to find their family. And then more recently, you've got that um, the Disney movie Onward, where you've got the two boys who are trying to have one last day with their father that passed away. And, you know, the younger crowd would be like, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Because right, yeah. the guy's trying to find who his dad is. I mean, this is a repeat theme all throughout um, our our human experience. You know, the whole like, Luke, I am your stepfather right. would have meant nothing to right. us. Yeah. Because, so why is it? Why is it that kids long to know and are deeply impacted by the identity of their own mother and father. And the way we talk about this at Them Before Us is that only a child's mother and father grant children something that they crave, and that is their biological identity. Bio biological identity matters. I mean, we are in a place where we've got more family, we've got more family breakdown than ever and more identity confusion mm -hmm going on than we've ever seen before. Um, we have lost the ability to answer the question, who am I, in the way that societies throughout history have answered the question, who am I? Normally, you say, well, I am the daughter of Andrew and Mary, or whatever it is. And they are, they, you know, he's Italian, and she's Irish, and, um, you know, here's our family recipe, and this is what we do for our traditions. And, I mean, we're now at the place where a lot of kids can't answer the question, who am I? Because they can't answer the question, whose am I? So the way that we know that biology matters most, right? Because I think we can reason this out. People can say, okay, yeah, I think that makes sense. But where you really see the rubber meet the road is by looking at the populations that were raised without their biological parents. Mm -hmm. So first you can look at adoptees who are largely raised by neither biological parent. Um, and what we see in the adoption world is a drastic shift in adoption best practice, where in the 1960s, um, like you alluded to, you would have waves and waves of children removed 
from their largely white mothers placed in largely white um, adoptive families. And oftentimes those parents were told, doesn't matter. You don't even have to tell them they're sure. adopted right. because you're going to be better than whatever situation the child was removed from. They don't need to know. Right. And yet that was when psychologists first observed um, this genealogical bewilderment, this bewilderment of who am I? What, who am I? I don't know who I am when I'm looking in the mirror. Um, that was when the phrase identity struggles was coined. Um, by Eric Erickson, who has his own fascinating backstory that we share in the book. Um, and so as a result of those identity struggles, we have shifted dramatically how we do adoption in this country. Now, you know, back in the 1960s, it was almost always closed adoptions, no contact, no information with the first family. Today in America, it's almost all open adoptions. 95% right. of adoptions in the United States are open with some degree of connection, information about or ongoing contact with the child's first family. And that's because social workers and adoptees themselves have recognized that they benefit from as many connections with their family of origin as possible, even if they can't be raised by them. Yeah. So open adoption is now the standard. We also see when looking at the other population that is separated from their mother or father, um, and these are the ones that lose their mother or father at conception, not at birth, but at conception, right. and that is the donor-conceived community. Right. So many of them are now old enough to speak for themselves, especially the children of sperm donation, and overwhelmingly, they say, the identity of that person matters to me. Many of them didn't know, like you said, growing up that they were conceived through a sperm donor and then took a 23andMe test and suddenly went, oh my gosh, my dad isn't my dad. And they've either said, that's incredible that this man who raised me loved me so well, even though he wasn't connected to me biologically, or they say, it all makes sense now. I never really felt like I had that same level of connection with him that he had with his other children. So they overwhelmingly will say the identity of this person matters. There's some disagreement in the donor-conceived community about whether or not donor conception should take place, but they almost unanimously agree that they deserve access to the identity and especially medical history right. of this one person because they can't even know medically who they are right. without the knowledge of their donor. So their quote unquote donor who they would say, uh, that's not a donor, that is my father right. or that is my mother. So we can see from these populations that biology matters to them too. Well, and speak a little bit to doing those same genetic tests, they're not just discovering the father or mother. They might be discovering half siblings, 50 half siblings, cousins, et cetera. That is absolutely a major concern. I think the story that illustrates this best is on our website by a woman named Ellie, E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. And, or maybe it's I-E. It is I-E. And um, she talks about how she didn't know she was donor conceived she had this massive loss when she realized she wasn't related to the man who raised her because she loved the man who raised yeah. her and she was devastated that he was not her father. And then suddenly she went, oh my gosh, I have a father out there. And then she did the DNA search. She, she scoured the internet to find birth records and marriage certificates and all of that to piece together the identity of her, her biological father. Um, and she did, and it was incredible. She said, I suddenly saw an adult version of my son mm -hmm. and I'd never really had a placement for my son before in kind of our, our genetic tree that she was exposed to. But then she said, 
but it's the dozens of half siblings that I realized that I had, many of whom probably grew up in my town. And she says, I'm so thankful I didn't marry one of them accidentally, but many of them probably didn't know that their donor conceived. And now my children probably have hundreds of first cousins that they don't know about, right? So these kinds of like the genetic tinkering that we do at conception through sperm and egg donation, especially when you've got sperm donors who are donating two to three times a week for several years, right? You can father hundreds of children. So beyond just the concerns of what that's doing to the gene pool, this is going to have multi-generational impacts when it comes to concerns about incest. Yeah, that, it is crazy. I remember someone testified, was she with you at the UN? That where she said something like she, was it based on the sperm, sperm donor location? She's like, I could have up to like a thousand half siblings or something. Yes, that was actually um, Katie Francisco, who is one of our donor conceived advocates. And at the time, she had limited information about the possible identity of her donor and thankfully was able to narrow that down and realize it wasn't in the thousands for her. But we all the time, you and I have these Google Google alerts that tell us about the news. And, you know, you've, you've got the guy in the Netherlands, I think, who 500. F- fathered 500 yeah. of them. And I think that there's questions now about his mental state. And, um, you know, you've got somebody who has a mental illness that might be genetically connected to the offspring, creating 500 children. So there is, you know, we're messing with not just children's identity, but really you know, so many of the different markers that normally we would be very protective about if we were meeting and dating and marrying in person, the father of, of your children. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting for our culture to be so, um, passionate about identity. Identity really is everything in 2023 when it comes to someone's ethnicity, the color of my skin, the language I speak, the place I live, where I came from is so important. What does it mean to be a man or woman or how do I identify in in gender way? And, and yet if we were to talk about identity in some of these topics, people might say, well, it does, well, that doesn't really matter because as long as they have two people who love them, we're trying to say the other kinds of identity, maybe we can argue about and go back and forth. But these are like we started at the beginning. If you exist, you have a man and a woman who created you. And we are saying to know those two people is a priority. To be raised by married man and woman is a priority. And then to be loved by that man and woman is a priority. And we we talk about this in the chapter and throughout the book. The outcomes and the life that that kid is offered is so much different than what we're seeing for kids who have been denied those things. You're going to be hearing a repeat theme in this podcast, and it is that adults need to do hard things. We can see how, you know, culturally, technologically, legally, we are moving towards a place where children are sacrificing these critical aspects of their identity, their development, their need for love and safety in service of adult desires and adult wants. And we have to, we have to reverse course. We have to repent in the sense of like turning away Mm -hmm. from those ideas that children sacrifice for adults. And the only way that happens is when adults do hard things for children. Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of 
adults have not known that they needed to do hard things for children in this area because they believed love makes a family. Any two will do. Kids don't need a mom and dad. They just need to be safe and loved. But once you're confronted by not just the statistics, um, not just the research, but the stories of the kids who have lost a relationship with their mother or father, the conclusion, the only conclusion you can come to is I have to do hard things so that this child has their rights and well-being protected. And the good news is that is in everybody's power. Wherever you are right now, whether you are pre-parenthood, post-parenthood, mid-parenthood, right? Most of us can look at ways where we can reorient our lives so that we are shouldering the load instead of expecting children to shoulder our load. That's good. If you're listening to this, then that can be you. You can be the parent that you wish you had. If you feel like you've made mistakes, you can take this knowledge and move forward. And and our goal at Them Before Us is to change hearts and change laws. And so there's a place for everybody who wants to be a part of that. And we're thankful you joined us and for listening. And thanks for joining the movement. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults. Thank you.